Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mysteries with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former Russian KGB spy. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Sample, on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the super awesome science show. They're home to the Smurfs. They make Alice change size. They even help Mario be super. What are they? Mushrooms. This week, we're going to grow our knowledge on the hidden benefits of mushrooms. We'll explore how they can be the source for medicinal cures and what makes many of them magical. And in our SAS class, we'll reveal how these fungi may be able to help us live healthier and possibly longer. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetra, and I'm going to sporulate your mind with the marvels of mushrooms. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. When you hear the word fungus, you might think of spoiled food, stinky bathrooms, maybe even feet. But what about the word mushroom? Changes, doesn't it? Especially if you like them. Fact is, mushrooms are fungi. From the button variety to expensive truffles, they offer an earthy and deliciously meaty flavor to our palates. You may have also heard of another use for mushrooms, and no, we're not talking about the hallucinogenic kind, not quite yet. We're talking about mushrooms for medicine. For thousands of years, certain varieties have been used to help combat several ailments. The Brazilians have used the sun mushroom, officially called Agaricus blazii, as a means to manage diabetes, atherosclerosis, hepatitis, hypercholesterolemia, and heart disease. In China and Japan, the mushroom known as yunji, or kawaratake, scientifically known as Coriolis versicolor, has been used to help fight off infections. Now, over the last few decades, Western medicine has caught up to these two, as well as many others, to try and figure out how these mushroom varieties are offering benefits to our health. The results have been rather surprising. Our first guest is one of the researchers who's trying to find ways to use mushrooms to help cancer. He's also working to bridge the gap between traditional and modern medicine. His name is Chow Li, and he is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at the University of Northern British Columbia. 
Why are mushrooms considered a potential source for medicines? Some compounds from mushrooms, they are, be, are being used today uh, as medicine. For example, uh, antibiotics uh, such as penicillin, tetracycline, erythromycin, they're all from fungi. And also cholesterol-lowering drug, lovastatin, is from mushroom. And then there are also compounds from fungi uh, used in diabetes, against malaria, and also against uh, and also antifungal drugs. They're all from fungi. Your research, though, is looking at cancer. About six years ago, I started collaborating with two mycologists at UNBC, and they are Dr. Uk Masikot and Keith Ager. And also I collaborated with a chemist from UNBC, Dr. Kerry Reimer. So we, we collected over 130 mus- mushroom species in the forests of north-central BC and also Haida Gwaii. So we prepared crude extracts from these mushrooms and then we screened them for uh, three bioactivities that are related to cancer. And those bioactivities are, we're looking at anti-proliferative activity against cancer cells. We also look at ability of the mushrooms to stimulate immune cells. And then lastly, we also look at the ability of the mushroom to have anti-inflammatory activities. Essentially, you want to find ways to use these compounds in the mushrooms to be able to either stop the cancer from growing, help our immune system fight the cancer, or prevent that inflammation that we all know is really just bad for us. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's what it is. So, so uh, ultimately, uh, we want to find these compounds, which hopefully can be used to treat or prevent diseases such as cancer. Now, how does that work in terms of the type of compounds that you'd want? Because antibiotics, well, we know fungi kill bacteria because they have to to survive. Statins, we know why that mechanism is working, and it's completely different, and it does help us to have better cardiovascular health. Why would a fungus want to be able to fight cancer, especially considering it evolved millions and millions of years before we even showed up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's a good question. Now, um, fungi, for fungi make compounds to kill other microorganisms in the, in the forest so that they can survive. So we try to look for those compounds to see if they can be used to treat human diseases. So you're saying that the same kind of compounds that are involved in cancer might actually be happening somewhere in a forest. Yes, yes, exactly, yes. Is this that concept of biomimicry or, or some kind of overlap in the way that the proteins fold so that something that happens to be in a tree could also be something that happens inside of our own bodies? Fungi makes compounds, and these compounds, they do have a target. Um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. They do have a target against a usually specific protein in microorganisms, and that will kill the microorganisms. So we, we, we hope to find compound from fungi that does the same thing in uh, human proteins that cause cancer, for example. Yeah, that they, they would actually, um, say, um, adopt a, s- a specific structure that can um, dock in a specific part of a protein and inhibit its function. And therefore, one hoped that that could block disease development. So now comes the critical question. 
Have you had any luck? <laughs> we just started this project six, six years ago. We have found some novel compounds, and we have tested them in petri dishes. And one study, we have gone to animal model, and we found that it does... It, so essentially one compound, semi-purified compound, it has anti-inflammatory activity on petri dishes, and it does the same thing. It has anti-inflammatory activity in animal model. Yeah, so far that's, for, that's how far we've gone. Do you think then that we might be able to use these semi-purified, crude, and other types of extracts as the beginning stages? Because ultimately, if we're going to get into pharmaceuticals, we have to have the sole chemical. We have to have that one molecule that we can produce and test in clinical trials. Yeah, that, that's where Western medicine comes in, looking for a single compound that can target uh, a, a protein in cell to give rise to a desired effect in the cell and hopefully in a human. Yes, okay. Western medicine does focus on individual molecules, and, that, and that's great. Mm -hmm. Traditional mm -hmm. Chinese medicine is really about mixtures, compounds that are put together. Yeah. We do see in historical books where we have these compounds that have purported to do something, and then we test them here in our modern-day society, and surprise, surprise, it works. Mm -hmm. Do you think mushrooms might be that sort of link between the two worlds that, for now, don't seem to want to talk to one another? I wouldn't say that they want uh, Western medicine and traditional medicine uh, wouldn't talk to each other. They have, but there, there are some problems. Um, to see, to understand the gap between Western medicine and traditional medicine, just such as tra tra traditional Chinese medicine, uh, we have to uh, understand the principles behind those two. Uh, for example, uh, Western medicine um, is primarily driven by big pharmaceutical companies. And the, the so-called big farmers, uh, they're not going to invest money uh, into compounds that they cannot make profit. So, so for example, if a traditional Chinese medicine has already been patented in Asia or sold widely as health supplements, uh, mm -hmm. big farmers will not be interested to invest in it. Okay, that, so that's one point. And the second point is, I, I, as you already, as we already mentioned, that Western medicine is based on the principle that one well-defined chemical compound uh, act often small molecule with well-defined structure. They act on a known target in cells uh, to produce the desired outcome in the cell and eventually in humans. Yeah, so those are the two differences. And so traditional medicine, as you pointed out, uh, they mostly include crude extracts consisting of many ingredients and mixture of compounds and often they act together to give rise to the desired outcome. Yeah, so, and also uh, in traditional medicine, um, in a lot of cases, the bioactive ingredients, they are large polysaccharides. And the structure of these polysac complex polysaccharides, they're not well-defined because they're very hard to study. Therefore, the action, mechanism of action is not well understood. Yeah. So those are the two big gaps uh, between uh, difference between Western medicine and traditional medicine. Having said that, mushroom actually has, may well be the help in closing that gap because you may or may not know that a, actually a compound called PSK, 
which stands for polysaccharide K. Uh, it's a, it is made up of polysaccharide and and a bit of peptide. Um, it actually has been used as a so it's, it comes from a mushroom called Trametus versicolor, and it has been used in Japan since the 1970s as an adjuvant for chemotherapy. Do you think mushrooms then provide us with that opportunity to be able to have both the individual components, because we can break them all down, but then also the synergism of having them all together? Uh, yes. Actually, you know, in Western medicine and today, uh, a lot of the um, so-called, actually, a cocktail of, of drugs are used to treat patients. So, so uh, there are actually few compounds today that are used to treat cancer patients, not just one compound. So that um, uh, basically agrees with the, with the traditional medicine idea that actually you need a synergistic effect of a few compounds to treat disease. Yeah, so, so. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I, I, yeah, and totally, uh, mushrooms contain a mixture of ingredients, and uh, that would be ideal. But just to be sure, people who are looking for the miracle cure can't go to their store shelves right now and pick up some tea off of that shelf and expect good things to happen. This is still the subject of lots of research down the road. It's just that we can possibly merge the gap so that eventually we will have something that works or is proven to work that won't be, as you say, pharmaceuticalized. Yeah, you know, in my opinion, prevention is the best. So if you, if you if we're able to take uh, certain food, for example, mushrooms, to prevent the uh, development of disease, that would be the best. If you've been waiting patiently for me to talk about that other purpose for mushrooms, you're in luck. It's time to get magical. The magic mushrooms have been used to take people on trips that are unlike any other. They relax people. They give people a new outlook on life. And if taken in large enough quantities, you get those hallucinations. While these mushrooms continue to be illegal, mental health researchers have also been showing an interest. It seems that the chemical responsible for that altered state, known as psilocybin, may have beneficial properties for mental health. Based on ongoing clinical trials, scientists think it could be used to help treat migraines, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and even depression. Our next guest is Hannah Reynolds, and she is an assistant professor of microbiology and mycology at Western Connecticut State University. She has been exploring psilocybin and is here to tell us all about it. What is psilocybin? Psilocybin is a derivative of tryptophan, um, one of our amino acids, the same one that's found in Turkey, and it's been modified and now... Um, what it does is it is similar to serotonin. So it's a hallucinogenic compound. It makes people hallucinate. 
Um, and it does that for a fairly short amount of time compared to some other hallucinogenic drugs. That's the idea of taking mushrooms, magic mushrooms, microdosing, all of that. People are interested in it because it has a shorter um, time frame for working. It has fewer side effects than some other psychoactive compounds. Thing is, I doubt that mushrooms produce chemicals solely for their human overlords. What is the actual purpose of this molecule? Our hypothesis is that this molecule would be useful against insects or insect larvae. They also have a nervous system, and that nervous system can also be affected by hallucinogens. And it's possible that this is kind of a weapon that the, that the fungi are competing for resources like dung or rotting wood. And these resources are used by insect larvae. And sometimes those larvae might even try to eat the mushroom tissue it, itself. So this could be just a, um, something that discourages the mushroom eating from those insects, or it could be something that protects this food resource for the fungi while they can digest it. I know that we can make psilocybin in the lab, but I didn't realize Mm -hmm. that we didn't know until recently how it was actually made in the mushroom. This is a derivative of tryptophan, right? So once there's tryptophan present, there is just a few steps that are needed. So it needs to get hydroxyl groups, it needs to be methylated, um, and then it needs to have a phosphorus group added. What our research found was that the genes for those enzymes are all packaged together. And then there are 200 species of mushrooms that are known to make psilocybin or psilocin, which is a related compound. And anyway, these genes are, were always um, found together. So everything needed to make psilocybin was right next to each other in the genome instead of scattered around, which that packaging is sometimes could have helped. It's sometimes a sign that horizontal gene transfer may have happened because it might be easier to transfer a package of genes instead of several genes that are scattered on different chromosomes or areas of the genome. Take us through horizontal gene transfer because that is really the focus of your research. Yes. The team that I was in, we were all looking at evolution stories, different fungal groups, different genes, but really interested in how and why and what genes get moved around from organism to organism. So the easiest way might be to think about vertical gene transfer, which is from parent to child or, or um, you know, parent to offspring. And this is pretty easy for us to imagine because it's what we do and it's what we see in nature all the time. Horizontal gene transfer is when genes are picked up instead of just going to the offspring, somehow they end up in really distantly related organisms. And this was first found in bacteria where there are different um, genes that make bacterial diseases worse or that give them antibiotic resistance that can actually move around between not just different species, but different genera of really distantly related bacteria can pick up genes for antibiotic resistance. And with bacteria, we know the mechanisms. So they can pick genes up from directly from the environment. They can transfer them with little tubes called pili from one cell to another. And bacterial viruses can also transfer these genes around. 
So when people started studying this phenomenon, they started finding evidence of horizontal gene transfer, not just in bacteria, but in a lot of different organisms. It seems that in our past, many of the fungi in, and plants have gained genes from very distant related species, and that's what we're seeing here. So if we've got something that we can shuttle, something like the gene mm-hmm. cluster yeah. for psilocybin, from my perspective, we've done the same thing for antibiotic production. We've done the same thing for statin yeah. production. Do you think then that we're going to be able yeah. to identify a way to just mass produce psilocybin by taking out that gene cluster, putting it into a bug like, say, uh, E. coli, and then just growing the heck out of it? Right. I think that this would be possible. The technology is there. It would be a little bit challenging because some of these genes, since they're fungal genes, they're really pretty large, but it would be possible to do. What you would need to do is put all of the genes for these critical enzymes into the same organism. And it would need to be probably a yeast because that's a fungus as well. So it has more of the cellular machinery to produce fungal enzymes. And this would be Um, a way to make psilocybin, if that's what people wanted to do, it would be a way to make it without a lot of the unstable intermediates and really um, sometimes dangerous chemicals that have to be used to produce it in the laboratory. I just have this fear there's someone out there who's going to want to start putting this gene cluster into yeast in order to make psilocybin beer. You just know it's going to end up. You think that the average beer brewing enthusiasts would have a very hard time just taking a mushroom and extracting genes from it and throwing it into their brewing yeast. You'd really have to do this in a pretty well-run laboratory with an expert on this kind of technique. Um, And part of that is that one of our big challenges in, in our research was getting enough really high quality DNA from the mushroom tissue uh, because it's, it grows very slowly, and it is technically something that a scientist would probably be able to do, but not just the average person finding a mushroom and blending it and then mixing it with yeast. Nothing would really happen if they did that. Well, that's good to hear, because I do not want to see psilocybin beer in the cat's meow. <laughs> I just, I don't. No, I mean, once somebody, the thing is, the kind of scary thing is, if somebody ever did make this yeast and then it got out into the general public, then, well, it could just keep being propagated, I guess. But as far as I know, nobody's actively working on that problem, but you never, but I think it would be very hard for the home brewer to to just work up something like that. We are seeing that psilocybin is being used uh, for psychiatric purposes. We're starting to see clinical trials and that type of thing. Do you think that having the ability to make psilocybin in the lab could help to standardize protocols so that we have better clinical trials as we move towards answering the question Mm -hmm. whether it really is an appropriate treatment? I'm not sure because, mostly because I don't totally understand the ins and outs of the pharmaceutical industry. I think if after all the clinical trials are done and there's actually if there's some evidence that it's going to be the next great psychological pharmaceutical drug for psychiatric purposes, I would think that having it in a yeast would make synthesis easier. But I really, I don't know. When I look at the protocols for chemically synthesizing it, it sounds fairly difficult, but I don't know what a company like a major pharmaceutical company would perceive. 
It's SAS class time, and today we're going to look at how mushrooms may be able to help you live healthier and longer. Our guest teacher is Robert Bielman, and he is a professor emeritus of food science and the director of the Center for Plant and Mushroom Foods for Health at Penn State University. His work has focused on an interesting chemical found in mushrooms that may provide us with the ability to keep our bodies balanced against the molecular stresses of everyday life. We know that mushrooms have many nutrients, but you've looked at bioactive compounds. We have what we call micronutrients, which are things like vitamin D and selenium, which uh, mushrooms have both of those. And then there's bioactive compounds like antioxidant amino acid called ergothionine. Another antioxidant, which is the universal antioxidant in almost all living systems, is glutathione. Back in 2005, a German pharmacology professor named Dirk Grundemann discovered that all mammals make a uh, highly specific genetically coded transport protein that carries ergothionine across membranes, including the you know the membrane that separates the blood the blood brain barrier, and a number of uh, of those. And that got scientists thinking: this molecule is is very interesting that it has this trait, it has this very specific transporter, which means the body really wants it. It takes it up very quickly and actually tries to hold on to it at all costs. For example, the kidney, where you would normally excrete a water-soluble compound like ergothionine, the transporter is highly expressed in the kidney, so it recirculates it back into the bloodstream rather than passing it out in the urine. So it made a lot of people stand up and take notice that uh, there was something possibly very important here. Have there been any studies looking at how it affects people's health? One time I decided to take a look at how much ergothionine is in the diet of, uh, of people, and there was a paper published a couple of years ago uh, where they estimated the ergothionine consumption of people in five countries, and that was the U.S., Finland, France, Ireland, and Italy. It turns out that the U.S. was 1.1 milligram a day, and Finland was 1.3, and then France and Ireland were, you know, in the 2 to 3 range, and Italy was like 4.5 milligrams a day. One day I got the idea to see if if there was data available on on levels of these neurodegenerative diseases by country, and indeed you can find that online. And what I found was, interestingly enough, Finland and the U.S. had the highest rates of these diseases, and France and Ireland had intermediate levels, and Italy had the lowest. It was almost like a perfect kind of correlation curve there, which again doesn't mean it's a causal, a cause and effect relationship, but it does make you stand up and, and take notice and say this, this is interesting enough that it warrants uh, a further their study using something like a uh, a human clinical trial. Are there any particular mushrooms that seem to have more than others? Yes, that's uh, back in 2005 when the ergothionine transporter was discovered and everything. I had a student that was interested in functional foods and that kind of thing. We decided to see if mushrooms had ergothionine, and we thought they probably would because it's known that in nature it's primarily produced by fungi and a few blue-green algae. And, of course, a a mushroom is basically a big ball of fungus. (laughs) So, indeed, what we did, we we found out that mushrooms are by far the leading dietary source of ergothionine. At that time, the best-known sources were chicken livers and oat bran, and the mushrooms, even the ones with the lowest amount, had 20, at least 20 times more than those. And what we found was is that the common button mushroom, which is the one commonly grown and consumed in the United States, either as white buttons or 
brown carminis or portobellos, which is just a big over-mature brown mushroom, had the least amount. And then the number of what we call specialty mushrooms, which uh, are non-button mushrooms but cultivated, like uh, shiitake and oyster and king oyster and maitake and whatever, all had about three to four times as much as the button mushrooms. And then eventually we looked into some more and we found that uh, porcini mushrooms, which are uh, not cultivated, which are harvested in the wild, especially in uh, Italy and some of the countries around there, had three or four times as much as the shiitake and those other mushrooms. They had the, the, the most. But again, the, the mushrooms would be a good source of getting ergothionine in the diet. And we recommend in order to get say, at least three milligrams a day, which is what I'm kind of proposing that people should increase their level, that would require that you would eat 100 grams of button mushrooms a day. That's 100 grams of fresh button mushrooms, which, you know, would be difficult to do. Or, say, 25 grams of shiitakes or oysters or maitakes. That would be difficult to do, you know, on a daily basis. So what we've done is we've started making powders from these mushrooms, uh, take, just dry them, air dry them, and then uh, grind them into a powder, and then that can be used as an ingredient. So what we're promoting is, especially these high ergothionine-containing mushrooms, could be made into powders and could be used as a food ingredient. And uh, for example, we've made bread, a whole wheat bread with uh, portini mushrooms in it, so that there was uh, one milligram of ergothionine per slice. So if you ate three slices of that bread a day, you'd have the level that you would need. And you would never know there was a mushroom in there. Can't taste it, you can't see it. Which is important because roughly 50% of the population don't like mushrooms and would avoid them pretty much at all costs. And, and you can actually obtain pure ergothionine. There's a synthetic process that's a, a patented process by a gentleman who has a company outside of Paris, and he makes synthetic ergothionine. And actually, he has, it been, he has it approved as a food additive in Europe, and he's working to do that in the United States, trying to get approval to use it as a, as a food additive. At some point in time, you may look on the ingredient list in your favorite food, and you might see ergothionine on the, on the list. However, being a food scientist that kind of promotes the, the whole food concept, I would rather that we get it in our food rather than as a, you know, as an ingredient in a, another food using either, you know, raw fresh mushrooms or the powders that could be added to foods as, a, as an ingredient. Well, that's it for this week's Sascast. I hope it helps you to top up on the marvels of mushrooms. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. We want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show in the form of themes. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week, 
And as always, make sure to show them some sass. <laughs>